In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove, and joining me today is a very special guest, a former professor of anatomy and physiology, now retired, Raymond Seelove. But I will be referring to him as Dad on account of the fact that that is the role he currently occupies with me. Uh, and he will be filling in for Michael today. So, Dad, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, and I just want to point out that throughout your life, I asked you to call me Raymond because I didn't always recognize <laughs> it when you said dad, because everybody at the grocery store is also named dad. <laughs> yeah, well, that didn't take. No, and, uh, it didn't. <laughs> and I'm sorry, dad, but uh, one day you're going to be granddad, not, not Raymond. <laughs> um, I'm going to try to get my grandchildren to call me Raymond. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. So, Michael and I have talked a lot on the pod about the importance of listening to scientists, so I thought it would be a good idea to actually bring a scientist on, because uh, I, I know one. In fact, I've known one for quite a while. Well, you know, listening to scientists is a good idea. One of the things to keep in mind is that you should always listen to several scientists, mm. not just one. Yes. Um, we have different ideas and the the way see the way science works is you have different people with different ideas battle it out hopefully respectfully <laughs> not always <laughs> and the best idea wins yeah um so sometimes scientists kind of go a little further than is warranted by the data because they're playing the role yeah. trying to trying to see how far this idea will go um but it's it's important to realize when you're doing that and to make sure that you are counteracted by someone who is going to be uh capable of withstraining you yeah uh, <laughs> this <laughs> This, this is kind of an important part of science that I don't think really ends up showing. Yeah, well, well, that's because a lot of people try to understand science from a very elementary level. So the stuff that you see in a lot of media that people actually read are super oversimplified deductions of small parts of a research, and, and uh, I, of a research study. And I understand that people just want an answer. Yeah. So they want to say, okay, quit, cut through all the extra nonsense and just give me the answer. I, I understand that people want that because that's what scientists want too. We want yeah. the answer. But the way you get the answer is by not ignoring all that detail. Yeah. Which with that in mind, uh, today we are going to be talking about COVID-19. Big shocker. Uh, we're going to be talking about it from a political perspective. And then later on the pod, we're actually going to break it down from a more scientific perspective. So I'm going to be talking to, to dad about how, um, like the, the biology behind COVID-19 and, I, I think it'll be a good opportunity for him to set the record straight for some of you all. And also for me, because, you know, it's very possible that some of the things that I've been saying on this pod have, 
not been 100% scientifically uh, vetted on account of the fact that I myself am not a scientist. Uh, and we're also going to spend some time talking a little bit about uh, some of the events that happened in Kenosha. So we're going to have a conversation about that. But first, to start out, let's go ahead and do an update on the COVID numbers, which Good. which have not disappeared no, and I was just reading an article in the Washington Post um, that was discussing how what we're really seeing is sort of uh, a rolling pandemic. Yeah. Um, we'll have a state that numbers start to look better, but at the same time, another state pops up as a hotspot. And Iowa right now is um, pretty bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it's a, it's it, a game of whack-a-mole basically. Yes. Yeah. So, here are the numbers. Currently globally, there are 25,865,205 confirmed cases and globally there are 859,478 deaths. So, very close to a million at this point for global deaths of how many people have been impacted by COVID-19. And in the United States, we have a total confirmed 6,110,535 confirmed cases and 185,644 deaths. So, Dad, remember when Donald Trump said that if we get only 200,000 deaths, that that will actually be considered a success. So are we successful yet? We're not successful yet, but we're close. Hmm. So, hmm. but here's the thing. It is an ongoing process. More people are going to continue to die. It's not like it's just going to stop right here because our response to it is continued to be completely abysmal. And... When you compare different countries, you see that what countries do can make a difference. Yeah. Even mandatory mask wearings could have saved thousands of lives in the United States, but Trump wasn't willing to do that. And in fact, he wasn't even willing to encourage people to wear masks. He was just like, eh, I guess you can do it if you want. I'm not going to. So he's still doing that. Yeah. He's he's still showing up with, uh, you know, on camera as part of his campaign things and and asking other people to take off their masks for the camera. Yeah, he's still doing that. Yeah. I mean, it, it's all about the optics for him. It's never about the health. It's always about the optics. And, you know, Dad had mentioned earlier that when it comes to science, you want to push the envelope, you want to discover the truth, and you want to have a bunch of people together trying to discover the truth. But when it comes to politics, it's never about the truth. It's always about the optics, which is one of the biggest problems in political discourse. I mean, even Democrats do it. Well, so politicians in general do it. Yeah. Because this is a democracy. Yeah. And... People gain political power on the basis of votes. So as long as voters are influenced primarily by optics, yeah. politicians are going to be primarily concerned about optics. Which is why we definitely need a lot more 
critical thinking taught in schools and a lot more uh, conceptualization of political philosophy rather than just superficial uh, definitions. Because like our our understanding of most political ideology is very elementary and rudimentary. Um, and it's one of the reasons why one of the things we talk a lot about on this podcast is the need to stay intellectually honest. It's why we talk about the concept of the defeasibility test. It's why we talk about trying to separate identity from ideology. So it's going to make me sound really old to say this, <laughs> but I blame a lot of this on George Bush. <laughs> Which one? Uh, the second George Bush. Okay. okay. So not that old then. <laughs> um, actually, so I, I'm going to blame it partly on him because of no child left behind. Yeah. Yeah. But honestly, this began prior to George Bush, at least here in the Commonwealth of Virginia, with the standards of learning that um, were pushed in Virginia and were in effect throughout most of your education. Yeah, I, rem I know. I remember taking the SOLs. And which was just, it, they, they named that, they had to have known that, yeah. you know, what people were going to call it. <laughs> so the problem with the SOLs was that, you know, the, the idea of trying to standardize education by itself is not that bad an idea. The problem is you get a bunch of people to try to agree on what the standards are going to be. And the easiest thing to measure is factual knowledge. Yeah. The hardest thing to measure is critical thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And unless you have very intelligent people working on the, the tests, what you end up with is tests of a bunch of damn facts. Yeah. Well, and all the intelligent you, people are too busy actually being teachers. <laughs> if you teach to a test of a bunch of damn facts, um, you know, most of your teachers, as you were growing up, pretty much ignored thinking. Yeah. I remember seeing lists of words that you were supposed to memorize. Yeah. And there were definitions and the definitions were abysmal. Yeah. And there was no attempt in those definitions to draw connections between those words to explain what they had to do with each other. All you did was memorize the words and then not what they meant, how to use them, how to use them to understand the world. Yeah. Which because is that wasn't going to be on the test. Yeah. Which is really why there's so much misinformation or at least misinterpretation going around about COVID-19. Just the other day I saw somebody quoting a, a CDC article that was talking about how most of the people who have died of COVID-19 have died because they had other things that were up with them. As in like, you know, maybe they died because they were diabetic. Maybe they died because of obesity. Maybe they died because they were also, uh, they also had some type of heart condition. But, and the point they were trying to make was basically, see, almost nobody's actually dying from COVID. They're just dying from these other things. Well, but the thing is COVID makes those like makes those uh, additional diseases or conditions it makes a person more susceptible to dying so you're still dying of covid-19 so it, it it again 
it takes like two seconds to really break apart like no this is not the cdc admitting that no one's actually dying from covid they're dying from other things it's the cdc talking about how these are the types of people that really need to be protected so we've spent a generation now um teaching all of our children throughout the united states to be superficial learners yeah and now the voters in the United States have a hard time distinguishing between who is being honest and who isn't. How do you tell the difference when you're only looking at superficial levels? Yeah. So that idea brings us to something that a new Trump advisor has brought up as a possibility of tackling COVID-19. So... He currently has an advisor who is a neuroradiologist, and his name is Scott Atlas, which, uh, hey, hey, Dad, um, so what exactly would you say that neuroradiology has to do with understanding a global pandemic? So neuroradiology is about imaging the brain, um, and it's, it's, a, it's a difficult field, it's an interesting field, and it is utterly unrelated to infectious disease in general and to uh viral diseases hmm. like covid19 in particular hmm. so you think he just saw a doctor and he was like yeah they're all the same so no i don't think so when the the articles that i've read have said that trump was specifically looking for someone to uh, argue against fauci and burks and he heard this one spouting off on Fox News and hired him. Fox News is basically the zip recruiter for the Trump administration at this point. Yeah. <laughs> go, and, on, go on Fox News, say something nice about Trump, and then you're hired. And people who want a job with the administration, they know that. Yeah. So they specifically use it to do that. So anyway, this guy has been arguing for... Basically using the strategy of herd immunity. Now, when he's saying herd immunity, he's, he doesn't mean herd immunity in the sense of wait till we get a vaccine and then, you know, make sure that approximately 70, 80 percent of the population get it so that anybody who can't anybody who can't get the vaccine is protected. No, what he's arguing is so, basically the equivalent of chicken pox parties. So your your first um, scenario where we're using a vaccine after it's been proven effective. Yes, that's important. To reach herd immunity, that's the whole point of the vaccine race. Yeah. Um, the vaccine race that, by the way, um, Trump decided he was not going to allow the U.S. to participate in the WHO yep. uh, vaccine program. Because, you know, the best thing that you can possibly do during a global pandemic is to do as much as you can to distance yourself from the World Health Organization. So it's it's a gamble. It is entirely possible that the United States will come up with a an effective vaccine before anyone else in the world does. In which case, um, he doesn't want to have to share it with the rest of the world he does know that like it came from the world to the united states like we're all in this together so he his assumption 
and it's a bad assumption, but his assumption is that if the World Health Organization is involved in it, they're going to direct all of the vaccine to Africa and Asia, and the U.S. is going to be left behind. Um, but in fact, the way the WHO would be allocating vaccines under this scenario is to go to the places that are the hardest hit because the world is in danger yeah. from the places that have the most infection, yeah. which is the United States. Yeah. We still have like 20% of the global cases. And again, I know I've said this maybe five times, but we represent 5% of the global population. So it is in the WHO's best interest to get us vaccinated as quickly as possible because we're ruining it for, we're ruining it for everybody else. So another big hotspot part of the Amazon in Brazil, we end up having to share with them. Yeah. Yeah. So here's so here's a question that I would ask dad. So um so his so wait, let me just say something else first. I said he's he's gambling. Yeah. It's entirely possible that someone else will come up with a an effective vaccine first. And the United States will not be able to participate in it because he's decided to go it alone. Which would be stupid for them, too. The, the best bet, right, is to be in on all. So the way you the way you play it safe in financial markets yeah. is you diversify. Yeah. Making sure that you're part of whoever the winner is. Um. Play both sides. This, Yeah, exactly. Play both sides. Why the hell aren't we playing both sides? Yeah, it makes absolutely no sense. And again, it, it gets down to optics. He wants to be like, yeah, look at us. We're America. American ingenuity. We're going to get this vaccine before everybody else. So once again, um, Trump was actually honest in his campaign. He said America first. Yeah. And that's what he's doing. Yeah. Whether it makes good sense or not, he's still doing that. Yeah. America first in, you know, global cases of, of COVID-19 as well. <laughs> just, just wanted to make that point real quick. So, so let's get back to this idea of, of herd immunity. So what he seems to be arguing, like I mentioned earlier, is kind of the equivalent of chicken pox parties by basically making it so that COVID-19 spreads through the most populated areas and then that will make it so that we will develop herd immunity because enough people will have gotten it. Now, so, to be fair, he has said that we should um, specifically try to protect people in nursing homes. Oh, of course. Yeah. Um, because they're the only thank ones you that for are that. dying. <laughs> they're the only ones that are dying. So... So approximately what percent of the population would need to be either vaccinated or to have already had COVID-19 in order to reach that level of herd immunity? So the honest answer is nobody knows. And anybody who tells you they know either doesn't know what they're talking about or is lying. Yeah. Um, the data just isn't in yet. Yeah. But that won't stop me from guessing, from <laughs> speculating, because yeah. this is what scientists do. Yeah. Well, um, that's what a lot of we people do are doing speculate. At this point. But I want to make it clear when I'm speculating. Um, so, 
based on other diseases, it is likely to have to be somewhere on the order of 80%. Yeah. Um, there are some people who have argued that in this case, it might be as low as 50%. Um, that seems highly unlikely to me. Yeah. Um, I think it's going to have to be somewhere in the order of 70 to 80% in order to significantly stop the chains of infection and and have people be able to go back to a normal life. And the reason why it needs to be so high is specifically because of how contagious this particular strand of COVID is, right? Right. So there's a, there's a, a term people use to describe infectiousness. It's, um, it's card called R naught and it's written R sub zero and it's the intrinsic reproductive rate of a virus. You could think of it that way. Okay. Um, for the average infection, how many people does that person infect? Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So if, if the average number of people that you infect as an infected person is greater than one, then it can continue to spread and grow. Yeah. If it's less than one, then it ends up petering out. Yeah. Because one becomes two, two becomes four, four becomes eight, so on. So, um... If, if on average you infect fewer than one person, then you get fewer and fewer people with each successive generation and it, it disappears if it's greater than one. Now, um, if, if everybody in the population is susceptible to the virus and the intrinsic R0 is two, Right. But the effective R naught becomes one because half the people that you meet are already protected. Then 50% of people would be enough to reduce the transmission and therefore stop the, the chains of spread. But if the intrinsic R naught is somewhere around four or five, then 50% wouldn't be enough. Yeah. Um, you would have to, if, you know, at, if the intrinsic rate is five, uh, then you would have to have 80% of the population in order to get it, the effective R naught down below one. Yeah. And, and, and is that what you're basing the speculation mostly on, on the, the, the R naught for, uh, it's for most, COVID at this point? It's mostly on that. But here, part of the problem is we don't really know what the intrinsic R naught is. We know that there are a lot of things that can affect that. Yeah. Um, there, are, there are things that people do that make it more likely to spread. So a lot of the super spreader events have been related to heavy breathing a choir practice, a, um, a gym, uh, a political rally where people are screaming, shouting, especially inside. Yeah. Um, so inside versus outside makes a big difference. Um, because the, the more the air changes, the less likely it is for these little droplets that contain virus to get from one person to another. Yeah. Um, wearing masks, has a huge effect on this because it catches so many of those droplets. It makes it so much harder to infect someone else. Yeah. Um, so there are practices that we can do that reduce the effective 
rate of reproduction. And um, if we want to go back to not having to do those practices, like staying far away from people, not going out to businesses, wearing masks, then we've got to have something else take over. Yeah. yeah. So that something else could be herd immunity. Yeah. So if we were to do that, though, if we were to do herd immunity the way that Atlas wants to do it. So, so the people who are promoting this are basically saying, hey, you know, this is not totally out of the blue. This is essentially what Sweden is doing. And in the early days of it, uh, it was looking like it was working pretty well for Sweden. And currently it's looking like this was not such a great idea for so, Sweden. So, so why, why was it not such a good idea for Sweden? Well, because a lot of people are getting sick and a lot of people are dying. You look around at the rest of Europe and you look at Sweden and, you know, they're nowhere close to herd immunity, but they've, they've been devastated. Yeah. Um, initially they were doing pretty well economically because they weren't shutting down the way other people were, but sick people end up hurting the economy too. Yeah. So, so basically if we were to go ahead and say that we need to let this spread to as many people as possible in the United States, uh, now based on my kind of, you know, rudimentary understanding of, uh, how, uh, pandemics work, usually the, you have a lower fatality rate, the higher number of people that actually get the virus because there's a larger sample size. So it's possible that that could put the mortality rate down to maybe one or 2%. But if we're talking about 80% of the United States, which has approximately 360 million people in it, and we're saying that one to 2% of those 80%, we're just going to you know let them die. That's millions of people dead. Yeah. So you know, this this is another thing that scientists argue about, and there is no answer because we don't have clear data yet. Um, the key that we need to know is what would a population-wide uh, case fatality rate be? And we don't know that yet. Because um, not everybody's had it. There are, there are smaller groups that we can get f case fatality rates out of, and some of them are just terrifyingly high. Yeah. Generally, the ones where the population is people with other diseases that make them more susceptible. But at the population level, most scientists are expecting that the case fatality rate will be somewhere between one-half and one-percent. It could possibly be substantially higher than that. It probably can't be lower than that. Um, so one half to one percent of what? 80 percent, 250 million people. Um, we're talking about millions of people dying. Yeah. And just to you know put that into perspective, at this point, we already have almost 200,000 people dead so we're talking in the united states we're talking about an order of magnitude higher than that much higher than 10 that 10 times so that is something that an advisor to the president of the united states is advocating for that the president actually alluded to in a recent interview with Laura Ingram 
Now, he kind of just mentioned it off the bat because I doubt he understands a damn thing about herd immunity. Looking at his actual quote, it looked pretty clear that he didn't have any idea what it meant. He didn't even say herd immunity because... It just said herd something. It has something to do with herd. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like herd something. <laughs> um, yeah, so that is... The fact that this guy has the president's ear and considering how idiotic the president is, that's something that really, really should concern us, uh, especially now that schools are reopening, cases are starting to um, are starting to increase among young people. There have been a few reports that have come out, for example, in Mississippi, uh, there were 22 schools in which uh, 34 cases of coronavirus have already been reported among uh, students and employees. And, you know, that might sound that might not sound like very many, but, you know, keep in mind what Michael and I have talked about with the concept of exponential growth. Uh, keep in mind what uh, what dad was talking about with um, the are not uh, considering how many people that those 34 cases are going to be spreading to. That's really concerning. And, you know, it is true that younger children are less likely to get the virus and they're less likely to die from it, but they can still get it and they can still spread it to people that are more likely to. So one of the things I think a lot of people don't realize is, you know, okay, it's true that there are a lot of people who get this and don't die from it. It's true that there are a lot of people who get this and really do not appear very sick at all. Maybe so mild in symptoms that they don't even notice they have it. Those are dangerous situations because those people, just because they don't feel sick, doesn't mean that they don't have an infection and that they're not infecting other people. Yeah. And this is the problem with children. Children are famously excellent vectors of respiratory viruses. Yeah. And there is no reason to believe that that will not also be true with SARS-CoV-2. Uh, by the way, SARS-CoV-2 is the name of the virus. COVID-19 yeah. is the name of the disease. Yeah. Um, so the the people think that because children are less likely to get sick, that that means they're safe. That actually probably means they're more dangerous. They're filthy. That's the way children are. And that's why they spread disease the way they do. They also spread pinworms and lice, all kinds of things. And now it's time for one of our more positive segments, Tips for Good. So, Dad, why do we do Tips for Good every week? So I've been listening to the podcast and listening to you do Tips for Good, and I think I know the reason why tips for good is done oh why is that i think it's because telling other people what they should do makes you feel superior and um <laughs> is that it no no not quite no <laughs> no it's uh, it's it's more the whole like make a world a better place thing actually oh oh isn't the world a better place when you feel superior Ah, uh, maybe on a, on a micro level. <laughs> <laughs> so dad, um, 
this week's tips for good was actually suggested by you. So uh, why don't you tell us what what is what is this week's tip for good? So it's related to information about COVID nineteen and the virus SARS CoV two. Um, there are lots of uh, news articles. There are lots of politicians who are trying to tell people about the science and what scientists say. Hmm. That doesn't seem very efficient. I don't think so. Most reporters don't know that much about science. <laughs> and most politicians... Know even less than reporters. Less. <laughs> Some politicians don't even respect scientists. Yeah. So maybe you should consider listening to some actual scientists. Hmm. And I've got a recommendation for some scientists to listen to. Uh, ever since the uh, pandemic began, Vincent Racaniello and his fellow virologists have been doing twice a week a podcast called This Week in Virology, TWIV. And it's it's generally runs about two hours, sometimes longer. Um, and it is scientists talking about the latest published research. They have guests on their their show with Anthony Fauci hmm. was fantastic. It was one of the best interviews with Anthony Fauci you'll ever hear because it was done by people who actually knew what was going on. And yeah. Fauci, he just seemed to be so relieved that he was getting questions that made sense instead of bullshit questions that he's used to when he's being interviewed. <laughs> yeah. Um, they talk about the various things that you hear and what they think about it. Now, they don't always agree. Sometimes they change their minds about things. This is what scientists do. When new information comes in, you have to alter your your opinions. Mm. And one of the things that I like the most is when they make mistakes, they have either fellow scientists or listeners, many of whom are scientists, mm. they uh, write in and they take them to tasks on their mistakes. And what they do is they admit their mistakes and they apologize for them. And they move on. Yeah. Um, this is how science really works, right? Science is not a, a way of knowing what's, you know, it's, it's not what's right and what's wrong. It's a means of figuring out what's right and what's wrong. Yeah. And it's never quite finished. But the process constantly improves. Yeah. The um, no scientist should ever just stick to something because they're not willing to admit that they're wrong yeah that's why it doesn't really make sense when people say well science has been wrong about things in the past well no it's people have used the scientific process and because of you know maybe a lack of all of the necessary or relevant information they have come to the wrong conclusion but you know as dad said science is not like this is right this is wrong it's it's a method for coming to what is right and what is wrong and when when scientists find that early data led them astray and they correct it, that's not an example of science being fallible. Yeah. That's an example of how science is supposed to work. Anyway, listen to Vincent Racaniello and his fellow scientists. Um, yep. 
And one of the most exciting things about it is you'll see what it's like to really be a scientist. You know, when, when you're in graduate school, when you're in colleges, when you're a professor, you know, you get together and you discuss what's going on and you disagree about it, you fight it out. And that's the thing that's exciting about science. That's why scientists love it. Yep. It's not learning what the right answers are. It's yeah. trying to figure out what the right answers are. It's the search for truth. Yep. The podcast is called This Week in Virology. Uh, I will be posting a link to their Apple podcast uh, in the description of the of this podcast. So uh, check them out and, you know. Maybe they'll plug this podcast. <laughs> probably not. If they're if they're interviewing people like Dr. Fauci, probably not. But uh, anyway, that's tips for good. So Nathan, what's going on in the world of race relations this week? Well, the world blew up again. Uh, again? Yeah, again, again. It's uh, once again Michael. Uh, Michael picked the wrong week to, to take off for the pod. Uh, so last week in Kenosha, Wisconsin, a black man named Jacob Blake was shot five times in the back by police officers. Uh, if you if you go back and watch the video, you can see the police kind of following him with their guns drawn around his car and he opens his door, and as soon as he opens his door, uh, one of the police officers shot him in the back seven times. Now, it has been reported that he did have a knife in the car, but it is not clear whether or not the officers actually knew that. And it's quite clear that their role in this was not one of de-escalation. And it's, it's certainly... It's certainly not clear whether or not it was a justified shooting. And based on what we've seen, based on the video, it does not look like the police officers involved used an appropriate level of force. So I had read about this, but I hadn't seen the video until just before we started the podcast and when we were prepping. And I gotta say, I was, I was kind of shocked, um, the the video really looked much more clear um, that it was unwarranted yeah. than the descriptions that I had read in the newspaper. And uh, I, I was a little surprised by that. He was walking away from the police and the police, the police officer was hanging on to his shirt and pointing his gun at him. Yeah. Like it was like, you know, don't get further away from me. If you're afraid of somebody and they're walking away from you, the further they are away from you, the safer you are, right? Yeah, exactly. And and again, they had no way of, first off, they didn't know that he had a knife in the car and it's not clear that he was going for it. You know, it, he was, it seemed like he was very, he was very calmly walking away. Like it was an, it was definitely an escalated situation, but it wasn't like he was running at it. It wasn't like he was making a bunch of jumpy movements. It, Looked like he was just walking towards his car door and, you know, I'm not sure which, what he was doing in it, but. Which I might have chosen as a strategy in that situation. If I had cops that were just way overhyped, the cops looked much more agitated than he did. Yeah. 
So if I had cops that were way overhyped, I might try to get inside my car as a way to separate myself from them, thinking maybe I'm less likely to get shot if yeah. I'm yeah. in my car. It's um, Now, in that situation, I would say that, especially considering the fact that cops in the United States are not trained for de-escalation, they're, so, they, they, they receive these... So wait a these... second. Some cops are trained in de-escalation... And some are not. Yeah, some are trained by so David Grossman, which if you don't know who David Grossman is, look him up. His, his name, his last name is a very appropriate last name. This is the guy who has basically been going around to various police departments, teaching them that they should treat uh, the streets as a battle zone and they should see everybody as a potential, uh, like as a potential threat to them and to basically try to see past your instincts that tell you not to kill somebody because humans don't want to kill other people and get over that so that you can just, you know, do go against your nature and kill people. But there are police that are going around and teaching other police exactly the opposite, which we need more of that. Um, and I, I wish I could remember his name. Um, at the time he was the, uh, head of the police department at um, one of the campuses at Nova. It might have been Loudoun. Um, and he came to Lord Fairfax to give a talk to um, our police, but also to our whole faculty, basically talking about his techniques of what he refers to as verbal jujitsu. Yeah. And it is techniques of de-escalating techniques of calming people down because the calmer people are, the less likely anybody's going to get hurt. Um, one of the things that I liked the most about that is this is a guy who seemed to understand that especially um, populations that are, um, that have developmental disabilities who are, yeah. you know, it's, it's not just, people of color who are disproportionately targeted by police, people with developmental disabilities are too. And often it's because the police don't understand what's going on. They interpret strange behavior as hostile when it might just be autism or uh, yeah. Down syndrome. But his de-escalation techniques were exactly what we need to help protect people with dis developmental disabilities and yeah. people of color and, and really everybody. Yeah. And that's why the concept of defund the police is not, it, it's not just about saying, I mean, you know, we've already said this before. It's definitely not about abolishing law enforcement. Um, it's about reallocating certain resources that go to over policing, but also within the ideology of defunding the police does exist the necessity of investing some of those resources into greater training. So, you know, yes, it's about taking some money away from police uh, departments to fund social programs, but it's also about limiting the number of police and the police officers that are, you know, the good cops, the ones that are better trained, giving them more resources like, you know, de-escalation training programs in order to maintain that. But one thing I do just want to say real quick is that, yeah. 
if you are in an encounter with a police officer, do what you can to get out of there alive. You know, like comply with the police officer, even if it's wrong. Do what you can to come out alive. To be clear, I am not saying that if you are if you are unarmed and killed by the police, that it's your fault. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that most cops do not receive that type of training that my father was just talking about. And, you know, it's kind of it's kind of sad, but you kind of need to be the adult pretty much a lot of the time. They're the ones with the guns. They're the ones with the badge. Do what you can to get out of there alive. So I'm not going to disagree with you, but I'm kind of going to disagree with you. <laughs> okay. Um, what you're saying is true enough, but it's but it's unrealistic in most cases. A person who's being confronted by police is likely to be terrified. Yeah, I know I am when I'm confronted by police. Yeah, and you under those circumstances, you just can't act that way. Um, you can't make rational decisions. You can't yeah. think it through when you're terrified. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe, maybe what's necessary is for people to actually practice how to de-escalate the police. Yeah. You know, back in the civil rights era, people who were going to go to demonstrations, they actually had practice sessions before going and how to de-escalate if police if police grab you go limp and it wasn't just telling people go limp it was practice it have someone be the cops grab you practice doing it because practice allows you to do something without having to think about it because once you're frightened you're not going to be able to think anymore yeah yeah maybe we need to practice this yeah, that's that's like a good the old point. Days. That's a good point. Um, so all of this led to massive protests in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and that boiled over to include illegal militia people walking around with guns um, to, you know, who were saying they were protecting businesses. Now, it's unclear how many of the people that were protesting were actually doing destruction of property and how much were just carrying signs and being peaceful. But I would say that questions about that at this point are not necessarily, it, it, it are not necessarily relevant because at the end of the day, armed militia people who are basically acting as vigilantes and pretending to be part of some type of official militia, all that does is escalate things. And there were police officers that were driving around and basically handing out water bottles to these armed militia people. And one of them, a 17-year-old named uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, actually killed two people and injured one person with a, um AR-15-style rifle. And the actions leading up to this shooting... Not all of them are clear, but there are a few things that are fairly clear. So the first thing that happened was uh, he he killed one person. It seems like they were having a little bit of a scuffle. Uh, at one point, um, uh, the victim threw like what looked like a paper bag at him. Maybe there was something in it, but uh, but they scuffled and Kyle shot him. So 
later it was made clear that the first person that Kyle shot was not armed, which means that the self-defense, uh, the self-defense argument completely goes out the window. If you have a gun and another person does not, and you shoot them, it is not self-defense. It is murder. So this reminds me of the Monty Python episode with the, uh, you know, how do you defend yourself against a man who attacks you with a banana? Yeah. And then he just shoots him. So that was supposed to be a joke. Yeah. Real. I wonder, I wonder if, I wonder if this idiot saw that. Um, but yeah, like it's, it's insane. So then what happened was in response to that, because there was this, there was this guy who was walking around with a rifle there were a bunch of people that were trying to charge him to disarm him because they're like, you just murdered somebody. We need to defend ourselves. And, and one of the people apparent reportedly was armed. But at this point, if another person is armed and they just killed somebody, then it's self-defense on your part, not, not their part. So, so some other people started rushing him, trying to get the gun out of his hand. And, and by the way, this is all according to, um, to several videos of the uh, of the shootings that were kind of pieced together by various different media outlets, um, they were rushing him, and he ended up shooting one of them and killing another, or uh, shooting one and killing them, and then shooting another in the arm. Uh, the one that was shot in the arm that survived, I believe, that was the one that apparently that reportedly was armed. But after the shooting. He walked over to some police officers with his hands up and the police officers just kind of rode by him like, oh, whatever. There's a guy walking around with a gun. And apparently the reason why. So some of the some of the um, uh, some of the police officers were, were asked about this, why they just kind of rode by them. Basically, what they said was that there are a lot of gunfights that have been happening and most of them have not resulted in someone being shot. So they just assumed that. It was just another person. It was just another gunfight, but no one had been shot or killed. There are a lot of gunfights? Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of gunfights? Yeah. And the that's police an ex- are just that's an exact, blase about there being a lot of gunfights? That's an exact quotation from uh, police chief Daniel uh, Miskin. I, I don't know if that's how you pronounce his name, but who cares? Fuck him. Um, and his exact quotation was, unfortunately, there are a lot of gunfights. Uh, a shots fired complaint, not a shooting, not a person down. We had many of those over the course of this. So, wow. So they know that there were that there were shots fired. They saw a guy with a gun walking towards them, and apparently they're not doing anything about that. After while people were shouting, "He's the shooter! He's the shooter!" And by the way, this is the same police chief that made the argument that if those protesters hadn't been out past curfew, that they wouldn't have been shot. Not, you know, not even mentioning the fact that Rittenhouse was also out past curfew and police officers were were handing these illegal militia people water bottles and thanking them for what they're doing. Is this the Philippines or is this the United States? <laughs> I, I don't know. It's... I mean, that's... It just... That's the kind of crap they're doing in the Philippines. Yeah. What What the hell? And also not to mention the fact that he, he is 17 and in the state of Wisconsin, I believe in most states, uh, 
you know, even even if it is legal to open carry, you can't open carry in public if you are under 18. How do you? So he was already breaking the law there. How do you get a rifle when you're under 18? I guess you um, th- there there were conflicting reports about this. It sounds like it's possible th- there were originally the report was that he was driven to Wisconsin from out of state and he already had the gun. And then there were some other reports that said that he might have gotten it while he was there, like from some of the other uh, militia people Um that that's not that's not entirely clear at this point. But the fact of the matter is, he was still breaking the law, like just by carrying the gun, he was breaking the law. On the other hand, just to be fair to police, lots of people were carrying guns in ways that were was not breaking the law. It yeah. might not have been very wise. Yeah, but it would be hard for the police to pick out which ones were. 17 and which ones were 18 perhaps um perhaps and 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 look you know i'm not necessarily saying that in that regard that was a huge police failure but it is still an important point to make because you know he was already breaking the law by having that and then he used it to murder someone and i guess i would i would say that you know a good reason for having that law is that you know teenagers are stupid (laughs) like they react uh, erratically a lot of the time i remember you know when i was a teenager like i i, I love guns i've always loved guns but like you know it, it would be it would have been stupid for anybody to think that you know a person uh, a person my age should should be walking around like armed that that's safe so, so you take your gun when you are planning to shoot something so it makes sense to take a gun going hunting. It makes sense to take a gun going to a shooting range. You don't take a gun to a demonstration. I mean, you might you might take a gun to what you expect to be an armed fight. Yeah. Well, I would say that uh, I would actually push back on that a little bit because I have been seeing a lot of um, a lot of surges in a lot of advocacy communities in which um, you have these marches in which uh, there are a lot of um, uh, black people that are parading down well-armed, kind of reminiscent of the early Black Panthers as a protest. But again, that would be in response to the fact that you have all of these right-wingers who are who are armed. So, so that kind of sounds like what uh ronald reagan used to call mutually assured destruction yeah um (laughs) you know you you enforce rationality with total irrationality the last point i want to make on this is trump's response so donald trump first off said that it looked like it was self-defense that he might have been killed which Again, the first person that he killed was not armed. It could not have been self-defense by any stretch of the imagination. So, you know, again, he at this point, he's inciting his supporters in a really scary way and making it, getting it to the point where it is a partisan battle whether or not wanton murder is justified. And he also was, he also commented on the actual killing of Jacob Blake and he was saying uh and 
And this was during an interview with Laura Ingram, in which he said... A friendly interview. Yeah, a friendly interview. Laura Ingram, huge Trump sycophant. He said, quote, One bad apple or a choker... You know, a choker, they choke. Shooting the guy in the back many times. I mean, couldn't you have done something different? Couldn't you have wrestled him? You know, I mean, in the meantime, he might have been going for a weapon. And you know, there's a whole big thing here. But they choke. Just like a golf tournament. They miss a three-foot putt. And right after that, Laura Ingram, because she just realized, oh my god, he just compared cops messing up and shooting black people. To golfing, she immediately broke in saying, you're not comparing it to golf because, of course, that's what the media will say. Yeah, yeah, that's what the media will say. You know why the media will say that? Because he just said that. Because he just did that. So so he's comparing it to golf. And by the way, I should say, just to make it clear, so Jacob Blake uh, fortunately has not died, but it does look like he's paralyzed. But anyways, so he is just so casual about talking about the lives of black people being threatened and in many cases ended by police officers. And on top of that, he is openly defending a, a shooter, a wanton murderer. This is, this is where we're at right now. So one of the things that frightens me the most is he has in the past actually promised pardons to people who break the law on his behalf. And he has followed through and given those pardons. Yeah. Yeah. He pardoned Arpaio who had basically what some people actually referred to as literal concentration camps. So we've got this person who has talked about perverting the justice process uh, for people who support him. He's talked about the danger of um, fraud at the polls. He's encouraging these people to come out and defend the cities, basically encouraging vigilantes. If his supporters think they can get away with anything because they're going to have the president pardon them. Yeah. Are they going to show up at the polls and try to intimidate the vote? This is this is really scary. A president can't go around praising people who apparently have committed a murder. And now it's time for one of our favorite segments, Ass Hat of the Week. So, Dad... Who is our asshat this week? This week, our asshat is Tucker Carlson. Yes. Is Tucker Carlson a return winner? I here? actually don't think he is. No? Which is which is unfortunate because he is, he is a, you know, he is a goldmine of asshattery. Uh, but he said probably the most horrific thing that he has ever said, and that is saying a hell of a lot this week in which he defended wanton murder. And I know that we talked earlier. So the president defended wanton yeah. murder too. But did he Tucker did it Carlson first. do it even He did it worse? first. Well, first off, he did it first. And one of the reasons why I'm going ahead and saying that Tucker Carlson is our asshat, 
Well, number one, because we have a rule that Trump can never be the asshat. Otherwise, he'd be the asshat every week. But number two, Trump watches Tucker Carlson. And he often mimics a lot of the sentiments expressed by Tucker Carlson. And Carlson knows that. So he said this. He, he did this, his defense of Kyle Rittenhouse, knowing full well that it's probably going to be echoed by Trump. So he said, in defense of Rittenhouse, quote, Are we really surprised that looting and arson accelerated to murder? How shocked are we that 17-year-olds with rifles decided they had to maintain order when no one else would? Now, one thing that's really in, uh, one important point to make with this is the fact that even if we put aside the fact that most of the protests have been peaceful, because, you know, there has been some rioting and looting, and, and although, we've condemned that on the pod as well. Although, to be fair, it is not clear how much of the violence is from the protesters and yeah. how much of it is agent provocateurs. That is a good point. But but let's go ahead and let's go ahead and say that, you know, yes, there has been a lot of rioting and looting and that that's wrong. So it feels like he is skipping a step because he's making it seem like it is accelerated to murder in response to the rioting and looting, leaving out the fact that the rioting and looting is a response to murder. It is a response to the murder of black people at the hands of police. It is the, the response of police brutality against black people and people of color. So you're saying that it's accelerated to murder? We have been there. Have you been paying attention? Demonstrations were the de-escalation. Yeah. <laughs> like, rioting and looting if... is a step down from murder. Rittenhouse is the one that brought it back up to that. What if the demonstrators actually had accelerated instead of decelerated? Yeah. That's that's a scary thought. But, geez, it, he's showing his, like, He's showing who he really is. He's always echoed a lot of white supremacist and white nationalist rhetoric. Say, this just sounds racist. But it's usually dog whistles. If it's if it's people of color, then we're terrified of them. And if it's white people actually shooting people, then we're okay with it. Yeah. I... I don't get that. Yeah. Now, I, I did read there that read somewhere that it, it's that it, um, Rittenhouse might have some Latin, uh, Latinx descent, um, but he, you know, but he is definitely very Caucasian looking. And I can never tell. It, but yeah, know. it is very clear that there is a double standard. And again, it's this is one of the points that we've been making on the pod for a long time. And that is the fact that. The people that are arguing against rioting and looting, even even though we on the pod have said that we don't we don't condone that, it seems like they value property to lives. And this was one of the most blatant examples of that. So the fact th this is an example of what we call stochastic terrorism. So stochastic terrorism is basically yeah. the idea that if you have a big enough audience uh, and you start to encourage violence on it or excuse violence, it makes it a statistical certainty that at least one person in your audience is going to end up acting on it. Maybe it's not going to be most of them. Maybe it's going to be a tiny, tiny amount, but it only takes one for someone to end up dead. 
This reminds me so much of the uh, the brown shirts mm. and the violence that spread because it was being encouraged at yeah. the highest levels of government. Yeah. So a hearty congratulations to Tucker, Tucker Carlson, Carlson for, for being, being our ass hat of, of the week. week. So our final segment for today is going to focus on the biology of COVID-19. And fortunately, we have a scientist here to actually talk about that. So the first question that I want to ask is, has, is there anything that I've said or that myself or Michael have said on the pod that is not entirely accurate in our coverage of COVID-19 about the biology of, of COVID? So, yeah, I do need to correct the um, one thing about uh, the virus, um, SARS-CoV-2, um, because you've said in the past that it changes its antigens very quickly. It's an understandable mistake to make because that is true of most of the cold viruses, and it's certainly true of the influenza viruses. The way they stay ahead of the immune system is by changing their surface antigens so that even though you are immune to a flu, for example, that you've had before, as that flu spreads throughout the world and eventually works its way back to you again, it changes its surface antigens, which is how your immune system recognizes disease in the first place, so that they're so different, sometimes within a year's time or two years, that your immune system no longer recognizes it. It's, it's basically like um, it's, it's changed its name tags. It's wearing, a, it's wearing a disguise. Your immune system no longer recognizes it, and so you end up getting sick again. So there are lots of different viruses that cause the common cold. There are coronaviruses, or four of those, that, that cause um, the common cold. These are totally separate from the coronaviruses that caused SARS-1 and this one SARS-2. Um, those, those four cause common colds, but there are also adenoviruses that cause common colds. There are rhinoviruses that cause common colds. And there are a few other things here and there that people will usually call the common cold. In other words, the common cold isn't really one thing at all. Yeah. It's dozens of diseases. Even though it feels like the same thing. Yeah. It's, you know, several different types of viruses and several different iterations of and, similar viruses. And totally different families of viruses that yeah. do things completely differently. Now, some of those are able to reinfect people because they change their surface antigens. But the weird thing about Corona is that it is antigenically stable. Now, there are plenty of diseases that are antigenically stable, and ordinarily an antigenically stable disease, once you are immune to it, you never get again. Yeah. Uh, so things like, like chicken, chicken pox, pox. Um, smallpox is a really good example of that, polio. Yeah. Um, once you are immune to that, you generally don't get it again unless there's something wrong with your immune system. So, so how um, is it, how is it that, but Corona is, yeah. How is it that if it's antigenically stable, how is it that you can still get coronaviruses over and over again? So 
the the real answer is i don't know <laughs> um one of the interesting things about coronavirus is that when you get over a coronavirus any of the coronaviruses um well okay any of the common cold coronaviruses you are immune to it for a relatively short period of time um three to six months maybe a year and then you can actually get that exact same virus again your immune system uh, just stops responding to it now from what we know about the way antibodies and b-cell immunity works that isn't how it ought to be and yet it is because hmm. it turns out b-cell immunity is not the only kind of immunity hmm. um we generally divide immunity into two different categories, although perhaps we should divide it into three and maybe even more than that. But I'll stick with the two categories, what's called cell-mediated immunity and antibody-mediated immunity. So antibody-mediated immunity, uh, sometimes called humoral immunity, is based on what B cells do, making antibodies. And what happens is the first time you get a disease, your immune system doesn't recognize it. So it tries to fight it, but it takes some time to recognize it. You, you have B cells that start making antibodies, but you know, they're kind of making them at random. Some of them seem to work. Some of them don't. The ones that don't work very well, you stop reproducing those. And the ones that work well, you reproduce lots of those so it's sort of a selective mechanism um there's also it's there's kind of like a little mini evolution of your b cells to select for the ones that work really well against this disease now once you find ones that work really well against this disease they make that antibody and you get over the disease but you also make what are called memory b cells and those memory B cells are the ones that lie in your probably lymphatic glands somewhere, maybe in the spleen, waiting for the opportunity to be used again. If you ever get uh, infected with that same disease, you don't have to go through that whole process of figuring out how to make an antibody that will fight it. You already have them in memory you activate those or reactivate those cells and they make antibodies so quickly that you never even notice that you were infected and you're probably not passing that infection to other people either yeah and that's when we say that someone is immune to something yeah so when you're fighting a disease that is a different organism like a bacteria or a, um, uh, a parasite, then it's relatively easy to distinguish it from your own cells. When it's a virus, it's not always that easy because viruses actually inject themselves into your own cells and your immune system recognizes your own cells as self. Should your immune system be killing your own cells? Well, when they're infected with viruses, yes. But it's hard to make that choice, right? You have to be sure, because otherwise 
you're going to be sick for nothing. It's like how with chemotherapy where it's, you know, uh, screw up your entire body and hopefully you kill the cancer cells. So the way you usually fight viruses is uh, more with the T cell response than with the B cell response. And there are a couple of different kinds of T cells. There are T helper cells that are involved in trying to work with the B cell response. There are also what are called cytotoxic T cells or killer T cells. And killer T cells are basically looking for um, weird combinations of antigens, things that shouldn't be there. Um, they, they are essentially monitoring your own cells and looking for clues that your own cells are, have gone bad. If they're infected with a virus, sometimes they show some of the viral proteins on the surface. And so they can see there are self antigens, but there are also these viral antigens. They say, they say, wait. That shouldn't be, and they kill that cell. Or they also are effective against cancers because cancers will sometimes grow so fast that they neglect to keep up the surface antigens. They start falling apart, and so your T cells can recognize cancers and kill them. So T cells work kind of differently. Um, during During the height of an infection, You need to have a very active T-cell response in order to fight off that virus. But most of the symptoms that you experience when you have a viral illness are actually the result of your own immune system killing your own cells rather than what the virus is doing. Yeah. So, um, so it would, is that why most of the symptoms when it comes to like the common cold are basically the same? Because it's not, it's not that it's the virus that's causing it. It's that it's your, it's immune, your immune response to that's it. causing it. It's causing place. it. Yeah. yeah. And that's why it's so hard to distinguish, you know, from your, from your symptoms. It seems the same. You can't just leave that system turned up on high all the time. Because if you were to have extremely vigilant T cells all the time, you would, uh, you would feel sick all the time because they'd make mistakes. They'd kill cells they shouldn't really be killing. So you have to tamp those down. Once the disease is gone, you tamp those down. And uh, if that's the main way you're protecting yourself from a disease, then you can you can actually get one disease helping protect you from the next one if it comes close enough in time. Because it's able to produce more T-cells. The T-cells are already active. They're already, yeah. So this is probably, so this is speculation, but it's but it's based on good scientific reasoning. This is probably why children don't seem to get as sick from COVID-19. Hmm. Children are constantly getting colds. Their immune system is much more likely to be on alert from the last cold that they had. And that residual can actually help them with um, getting over COVID when they get it so that they never really feel quite as sick. Because that's interesting because uh, uh, based on what I know about most diseases, the most vulnerable populations are the very old and the very young, but 
because the very young are often so susceptible to other diseases, in this particular case, because they already have those T cells that are produced, that makes it easier for them to maybe not like to to not necessarily never get the virus, but to fight it very easily. Exactly. And this is why you can sometimes get a positive effect from a vaccine for a completely different disease. So Trump was actually on to something. Uh, accidentally, accidentally. Yes. Um, yeah. Now that's interesting. Now that's he interesting. was he Broken was clock. He was wrong about using an influenza virus or an influenza vaccine. That would not be a, an appropriate one to use. What you'd really want is um, one of the vaccines that has active viral particles. There are oral polio vaccines, for example, that have active but weakened viruses. Um, because when a, when a vaccine makes you feel sick, it, your immune system actually takes it more seriously and has a more active response. And that response lasts for a while, especially that T cell response. And so it might actually turn out that we could get a better uh, response from a more dangerous vaccine, hmm. which this is one of the fundamental paradoxical things about vaccines. The safer a vaccine is, the less likely it is to work. <laughs> the more effective a vaccine is, the more likely it is to make you sick. <laughs> now, that's an oversimplification. Yeah. But it generally holds. Hard sell to anti-vaxxers. Yeah, yeah, it is. One of the things that makes vaccines more effective is called an adjuvant. Sometimes you add a chemical to a vaccine that's totally unrelated to the disease, but it just makes uh, a person more sick than they would otherwise have been. And that helps to convince the immune system, this is real, we've got to really fight this. And so it might make sense for the COVID vaccine to include some kind of adjuvant to make people a little more sick. That might make it more effective. So that's definitely going to be a very hard sell for anti-vaxxers. And that's really concerning considering the fact that what's going to be really important if we, once we develop a vaccine is going to be that herd immunity. And the more people that try not to take the vaccine that try to opt out of it. I don't, I don't know whether so this it's going is, to be mandatory or not. The more, the less effective that herd immunity is going to be. That's true. But on the other hand, if you have a vaccine that is less effective, then you need a greater number of people to have it before yeah. you reach herd immunity. Yeah. So it, this, this is going to be a difficult um, thing to work out. And it's going to require people who really understand the data to come up with a strategy that makes sense. So taking into account people that are suspicious of vaccines and how that's going to impact herd immunity, but also taking into account how powerful the vaccine needs to be in order to actually reach that herd immunity. I, I don't envy the person that has to come up with that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm glad not to be. However, I want to be there listening to their debate. Yeah. Um, and, and it needs to be a real robust debate. 
Which, which brings us to another issue that I wanted to bring up, and this is kind of what ties this discussion with our previous one. One of the biggest problems I see right now is the, the vaccines that are under trial right now, they are having a difficult time getting a good representative sample for their trials. Why is that? Well, it turns out that a lot of the people who are disproportionately made sick by COVID-19 are um, people of color. Ah. Hmm. Uh. And we've also got this historical yeah. problem in the United States where a lot of people of color don't trust the medical establishment. And yeah, for good reasons. And there are some good reasons. I mean, the, the Tuskegee experiments, you know, we, we don't, there, we, we don't have a lot of goodwill in that regard. There have been some serious um, malfeasance in the medical community. And so, so what do you do? If you go ahead with an overly white representative's sample in this um, in these trials, because you're having trouble signing up a more diverse population, you might end up missing a differential effect. What if it what if it were to turn out that a vaccine was safer for people of European descent than people of mixed or African descent. And you didn't know that because you didn't have enough. That would end up, if you then tried to deploy that and you ended up with more adverse effects among people of color, that, that could actually... Reduce, that would reduce trust even more. That would reduce trust even more. Yeah. So what do you do? I don't know. <laughs> that, it is, that is a really difficult question. It is so important. It is so important to have a diverse population sign up for these trials. Yeah, because various different, like, you know, various different people have various different genetic information based on, uh, you know, based on areas that they're descended from. Yeah. And we already know that those are important when it comes to COVID. So we absolutely have to have clinical trials that reflect that. Otherwise we won't know how safe it is on the population that needs to use it. Or we might end up not being able to convince part of the population to use it. And then, then herd we never, immunity's fucked. Then we never reach herd immunity. Yeah. And now we're going to end the podcast with our most positive segment highlights so dad what what are your highlights this week so my highlight this week has to have been monday august 31st yeah um does that date ring a bell to you august 31st uh well it's it's it's, it's around the time that i have to start that I am scrambling and starting classes. Yes, but I'm not scrambling and starting classes because oh, yeah. I'm retired. Oh now. yeah. <laughs> and in fact, for the first time in my married life, I am not scrambling <laughs> for classes on August 31st. Yeah. Um, throughout my 35 year marriage, 
it's always been a little bit of a sore spot for my wife Yeah, that um, I'm too busy at the time of our anniversary for yeah. yeah, really paying attention and celebrating our anniversary. Oh, and yeah. This oh, yeah. year. August, August 31st is your anniversary. Yeah. So this year for our 35th anniversary, Shelly and I had a weekend at the Shenandoah River in our little cabin there. Um, it was wonderful. It was quiet. We focused on each other. Yeah. Um, long overdue. Now I, now I feel kind of bad that I forgot that that was your anniversary. <laughs> um, I remember my anniversary. It's okay. Though. You weren't there for our wedding. I, so, I wasn't. Yeah. yeah. Your, your, your marriage is old enough to be president now. Ah, yes. Maybe we should run my marriage. I mean, I'd vote for it over Trump. <laughs> Honestly, I'd probably vote for it over Biden. <laughs> um, I don't think it's eligible. Yeah, probably not. Um, my highlight this week is I- I'm starting to feel like I'm getting a handle on my classes, getting a handle on the content. There's still a lot of stress that's involved in preparing new classes, especially considering the fact that I, uh, I'm teaching hybrid classes for the first time, but I feel like I am starting to get a handle on it. I feel like I am starting to settle into a routine and, and I'm, I'm hoping that as the semester goes on, even as work piles up, it'll feel less, uh, intimidating. Well, I'm really pleased to hand over <laughs> being professor C love from one generation to the next. Yep. And congratulations. Thank you. And with that, we are going to go ahead and end the pod. Thank you so much for listening. And you will hear from us again next week.